Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to Immigration and Mobility Decoded, a podcast about all things immigration, global mobility, uh, and everything else in between. Eric, how are we doing today? Doing good, Finn. Uh, it was a good weekend here in Chicago uh, for the weekly weather update that we've been doing in the last couple of weeks. Uh, it was in the 80s uh, these last couple of days, but today on Monday, April 17th, it is currently snowing. So, that's uh, the wild swing of weather here in Chicago. How are I'm you? good. It seems like it's been that way across the whole country. I know uh, last week, lots of folks in the Midwest and the East were enjoying the summer-like weather. I, uh, I took my dog out for a walk on Friday, and the humidity was at 80% in Maine, which was very, very Oof. strange. <laughs> so Yeah, the humi- that, that humidity gets you. Yeah, it was a weird, weird experience for April, but it's back down to normal here. We're not getting <laughs> snow. Uh, we're getting rain instead. But uh, mm. yeah, definitely looking forward to uh, the next month or so, and it's going to be a bit nicer. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, the weather, um, I, and I wish... We could probably have a full episode on this, but this isn't uh, before we were recording. We were talking about succession and in, in, uh, last night's episode, and we can have a full succession pod on it. Um, but we won't as much as we want to talk about it. But let's just say a very another very good episode. It was, yeah. I don't think we've asked our guests if they're watching Succession. The, la- the Last <laughs> of Us was the uh, was the prominent show. Yes. Uh, at the beginning uh, of of yeah. uh, when we started the podcast. Uh, about a month and a half ago. So we'll have to start yeah. asking uh, the next few guests if they're watching Succession. There you go. Um, yeah, no, it's actually it's actually funny you bring up The Last of Us, um, you know, because when, when we did start this podcast uh, about a month ago, beginning of March, that was the hot, that was the hit TV show. Um, and, you know, we're doing this intro, this is episode seven now. Uh, today's episode is going to be a little bit different, um, just a little bit more focus on some recent immigration news and some articles that, 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 we've, um, that we want to talk a little bit more about. And then, um, um, Finn, you know, you, you had a recent conversation with a, a partner at uh, Global Integration Associates, which we'll get to in a couple minutes. But um, yeah, so episode seven, six episodes have been recorded with, with a couple of different guests. Um, Finn, how, how, how's this journey coming along so far? I think uh, we, we, we were talking about this podcast at the end of the last year and, you know, we really embraced it and. Yeah, so here we are. What do you? What, how are you feeling? I mean, it's been great. I, I think we tell every guest after we uh, after we stop recording uh, that selfishly, this experience of starting a pod, podcast has been great for us because we just get to talk to really smart people and pick their brains about stuff mm-hmm. that we're interested in. Uh, thus far, it seems like there's other folks who listen in who also get a lot of value out of the conversations we have with the interesting folks we've had on. So we're looking forward to continuing to bring on. Uh, lots more really, you know, accomplished, experienced, uh, and smart guests uh, to share those conversations with the audience. But what are your thoughts, Eric? Your reflections on this so far? Yeah, no, I, I, I echo your your sentiments. Uh, I think it's it's always great to talk with uh, to hear different viewpoints on immigration and mobility. Um, you know, we we, we talked with uh, Arf Kimani from Mob Squad, and you know, he's based in Canada, so he has a you know pretty grounds eye view of, of immigration in Canada and just hearing uh, diving a little bit more into the Canadian immigration system and how much it differs from the U.S., particularly when it comes to various pathways and how quickly they're able to kind of tweak their system to, to meet the needs and, you know, just how much they're embracing immigration, um, you know, their immigration levels plans, uh, they're, they're well on track for that. 
Um, and then last week's episode when we talked with uh, former ambassador John Feely, uh, that was super interesting uh, just to kind of hear the viewpoints of someone who has worked in, in government. And, you know, he's he was a uh, ambassador to Panama. Um, love that conversation. And Celia Esterline, you know, she's a immigration analyst at the Niskanen Center. And she put together a really good article and research on you know, five ways that the Biden administration can fix the immigration system here in the U.S. And I, I found that super interesting because it hit on a, some of those suggestions were suggestions that we really hadn't seen before, in particular, like the expanding the J-1 um, to uh, cover like healthcare workers or home healthcare workers. That that was a super interesting idea. Um, yeah, yeah. No, like you said, and then a scan centers, you know, one to one to watch and a think tank that we're always paying attention to because one of those five proposals was uh, bringing back stateside visa renewals uh, for certain mm-hmm. uh, for certain visa holders, employment based visa holders in the U.S. And the government actually announced that they'll be doing that uh, later this summer. Yep. So I don't know what went on behind the scenes. Uh, and how much involvement any of the folks at Niskanen had uh, in, in convincing the Biden administration to take that action. Um, but it is great to see that, you know, despite a lot of shortcomings, uh, and despite a lot of, uh, let's say, you know, uh, unfortunate uh, backtracking under the Trump administration uh, when it comes to the U.S. immigration system, uh, the past few years there have been some important but under-the-radar leaps forward uh, in improving uh, immigration policy. Um, and that's something, you know, we plan to continue to cover here uh, at the podcast. It's something we plan to continue to ask our, our guests about. Uh, one of my favorite parts of uh, having uh, these folks on the podcast is asking them, uh, like we did with Chris Richardson, former uh, U.S. visa officer and um, uh, now at BDB Solutions, we asked him what he would do if he was czar of immigration, how he would improve the system. Mm-hmm. He just had some really interesting suggestions. Uh, yeah, that, that we were, uh, that were, that were fun to, fun to hear, uh, and, and imagine yeah. in an ideal world. Yeah, no, I lo- yeah, that was a great conversation as well. I love hearing those, those suggestions. So definitely recommend everyone check out those episodes if you haven't already. Um, so yeah, Finn, uh, you know, there's two recent articles that came out, uh, one from marketplace and then one, uh, an opinion piece from, from Paul Krugman at the New York times kind of on the similar topic um, and that's just immigrant immigration and, uh, and the larger economy. Um, so just to quickly recap the marketplace one, uh, immigration is slowly increasing after a stark pandemic drop. Uh, Finn, as I'm sure you know, and as our listeners know that, you know, the pandemic really affected immigration uh, numbers. You know, they severely declined, uh, you know, due to, you know, the pandemic, as well as uh, restrictions put in place by the Trump administration. Um, in fact, according to the Migration Policy Institute, the number of legal immigrants coming to the U.S. was cut in half between 2019 and 2020. Um, lately, those numbers have rebounded. And then similarly, Paul Krugman hits on that, um, that immigrants are seemingly... It seems that the, the rebound in immigration is helping the economy perform better than maybe what we've been hearing about. Uh, so I'm curious, Finn, what are your thoughts on 
on, on these these two articles, but then overall Im- immigration's impact on the U.S. economy maybe performing better than what we were anticipating. Yeah, Eric, in that op-ed by Paul Krugerman, uh, he cites that the economy added 236,000 jobs last month. And that's a trend that we've seen happening month after month again and again, that the economy continues to add jobs. And one sector uh, where jobs continue to grow, despite uh, there being layoffs that were announced uh, mostly in, in the fall of 2022, uh, is the tech sector. Um, a stat that uh, Envoy CEO Dick Burke loves to cite is the STEM unemployment rate and how consistently low it is. Uh, I just looked it up, and for March 2023, the unemployment rate for computer and mathematical occupations, uh, which we commonly refer to as just the STEM unemployment rate, uh, those are folks who work in STEM fields in the U.S., is 2.2%, which is typically, most economists will tell you, far below uh, full employment, uh, normal employment for that for that range. Um, and meanwhile, we don't have the numbers out yet, but Ian Love, who we'll speak to uh, briefly at the end of this episode, uh, is predicting that anywhere between 700 and 800,000 H-1B cap registrations were submitted this year based off of some, some of the numbers he's seeing internally uh, and from uh, his colleagues uh, who work with uh, clients that submitted registrations in the H-1B lottery this year from across the country. So if that's true, if it's anywhere close to 700,000 registrations for H-1B high-skilled foreign nationals this year with only 85,000 available, that just shows that, okay, the U.S. is going to keep adding jobs, but are we going to have the talent to fill those jobs, especially in key sectors like STEM, ta- uh, STEM fields, uh, which you know some of our most innovative companies uh, need employees to fill those roles? I don't know. Wait, just going back to, to what you just said, uh, I know USCIS hasn't released the official numbers yet, um, but Ian Love, uh, he thinks that there are almost like 700, 800,000 electronic registrations submitted this yeah. year. Yeah, based on, wow. uh, it, it could be that high, it could be lower, but based on the, and again, we'll, we'll hit on it later in the, in the episode when uh, we talk with Ian briefly, but uh, based on the uh, numbers that he's seeing, uh, at, at Global Immigration um, Associates at mm-hmm. his firm, and then his colleagues at other law firms who, again, work with clients across mm-hmm. the country, the selection rate that they're seeing for their clients is around 5 to 20%. Uh, and again, if it's closer to that 5% number, that mm-hmm. if you do a simple equation, you do the math, that means that there's, like Ian said, upwards of seven or 800,000 registrations, which would almost double Man. the number of registrations last year. That, that that's a wild number to hear because yeah, as you said, there's only eighty five thousand total H one B visas, and it's been that way for years. So it's like you said, there's just clearly this demand for 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 high skilled foreign talent, but there's not enough options. There's not enough H one B visas for them. So no, and I'll add that uh, you know we've talked about it a few times on on the podcast here, but Envoy's Immigration Trend Survey uh, predicted this this demand a little bit, right? Um, mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. found that uh, in, in our survey, uh, 71% of, of companies that we surveyed uh, said that in Q1 of 2023, they were recruiting more foreign national employees than in Q1 of 2022. Um, and the, the Department of Labor's released numbers, released data on labor condition applications, which is a prere- prerequisite uh, document that uh, employers need to file with the Department of Labor in order to sponsor uh, an individual on an H-1B visa. 
Uh, and for Q1 of 2022, so Q1 of last year, uh, that was like a record high demand for foreign talent. So mm-hmm. in our survey, you know, the writing was already on the wall, um, according to our respondents that, hey, there's still a really, really high demand for foreign talent. Uh, the H-1B lottery may be another, you know, uh, be another fact point there uh, showing that the, mm-hmm. that the demand is still high. Um, and as, you know, writers and economists like Krugman are correctly pointing out, without immigration, the economy probably wouldn't be continuing to grow at the same rate that it is. Right. And then that, that leads to the longer term viewpoint of, you know, making the case for more immigrate or for, you know, uh, changing up the, the U.S. immigration system to allow for more, you know, legal immigration so we can, uh, so the U.S. can fill, you know, job openings, employers can fill those, you know, find the high skill talent um, or, or other sectors. You mentioned uh, the H-2As, um, you know, we have the H-2Bs. So, uh, you know, Krugman writes that, you uh, you know, long-run concerns about U.S. finances are largely driven by a rising old age dependency ratio. Um, and he's, he notes that uh, the recent surge in immigration, a lot of those individuals are of working age. Um, so new immigrants are coming in and they're, they're working and it's leading to uh, better economic conditions than, than what we were anticipating and going back to the start of it, you know, there was that, uh, I'm going to butcher the saying, but that, that saying of, you know, ex economists predicted, you know, three of the last 29 recessions or something. Um, you know, we've been hearing talks about recession, 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 but you know, so far as we can tell, it hasn't happened yet. Um, yes, inflation is still high, but the recent uh, report of last week shows it's coming down. Yeah. And, you know, one of the topics that's, you know, been reoccurring with the guests we've chatted with thus far uh, in, in the last six episodes of the podcast uh, is the fact that other countries are proactively changing their immigration systems and their immigration policies to welcome more talent from overseas to bolster their economies and to safeguard their economy uh, against, you know, some of the pressures that that we hear about in the news all the time. Yeah. Um, well, look at, yeah, I know a good example of that is, uh, is Germany. Um, they're in the midst of overhauling their immigration system to make it easier to work in Germany, but also then to obtain a uh, German citizen, citizenship, um, because their, their, their workers are aging, um, and they need to replace them in order to keep their economy humming. So that's a, that's a good example of what you just said. Yeah. I attended an event, a virtual event, um, last week hosted by the Migration Policy Institute, um, the event was called Meeting Global Skills and Talent Needs in Changing Labor Markets. Bit of a mouthful there. Um, but it was a great event hosted by MPI, great institution. Um, all of our audience should should head over to the Immigration Policy Institute's website and check out their research. They're uh, one of the leading uh, uh, think tanks, institutions in the world covering uh, U.S. immigration trends, but also immigration trends uh, in countries around the world. Um, and this virtual event was uh, was was a branch of that. They had uh, Er Jadu, who's the director of USCIS, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, uh, there, and then they also had essentially her counterparts. Um, so folks from Canada, uh, the European Commission, and Australia, who head up the immigration departments in those countries, 
Uh, and the four of them talked about what actions their agencies are taking in their respective countries to try to improve the immigration process to, you know, not just welcome foreign talent and make it a little bit easier for, uh, you know, students and high skilled professionals and uh, workers uh, in, in key industries uh, where those countries need to fill talent gaps uh, are. They were also just talking about how they can uh, remove roadblocks, which is something that we've discussed with our guests a lot, Eric, is how the U.S. has far too many roadblocks uh, that stand in the way between an employer hiring somebody for a job uh, and that person actually being able to get the visa, the work authorization they need to come here. Um, we'll add a link to that conversation. It's, it's on Vimeo. I'll add a link to that conversation in the show notes, but I definitely recommend checking it out. Um, you know, having having the uh, a panel of the leaders of uh, departments from uh, the respective departments of, of immigration from these various countries, mm -hmm. uh, all in one room talking about uh, well, one virtual room, I should say, talking about how they're improving the immigration <laughs> system uh, or how they're working the immigration system in their countries was was quite interesting. Yeah, yeah, and you know those those hurdles. I imagine most listeners. In the, in the U.S., un, know and have experienced those hurdles. Uh, if not, I think that, you know this year's immigration trends report um, does a good job of capturing some of those hurdles and things that you know respondents would like to see changed. Uh, Finn, what uh, going to that immigration trends report? What um, has stood out most to you about about the report um, since it's been released in, in early March? So I think what got the most media attention from the survey. Um, and, and just for listeners who may be hearing about it for the first time, uh, back in February, Envoy conducted a survey of 500 uh, corporate uh, professionals who specialize in immigration and global mobility for their companies. So these are folks with job titles like global mobility manager, uh, immigration specialist, et cetera. Uh, and these were all U.S.-based individuals. So uh, Envoy surveyed 500 of these folks from companies across the country. Uh, and the data, the responses that stuck out the most and were covered the most by the media were the fact that uh, a lot of U.S. companies are getting fed up with the barriers uh, in the U.S. immigration system that are either delaying or preventing them from sponsoring and hiring the foreign talent that they need on a U.S. visa and bring them here. And because of that frustration, companies are not just looking at alternatives overseas, but they're actually acting by moving folks who they would have hired in the U.S. to Canada, to uh, the U.K., to Germany, um, to destinations around the world where the immigration system is just much faster, much more efficient, and much more of a sure thing. And I think what's most interesting about those findings and when you compare them to the conversations we've had in the last six weeks with our guests, it's that employers want to hire foreign talent. They want to hire folks, immigrants, uh, to come to the U.S. and work in the U.S., but the barriers are just becoming too high. Um, one great example that we've just touched on, right, is the fact that last year there were almost 500,000 registrations for the H-1B lottery, only 85,000 slots available. We don't have the numbers yet, but it could be as high as seven or 800,000 uh, registrations, again, for only 85,000 slots. Um, I think that's been the most compelling finding from that survey is that employers in 2023 
want to hire for talent here. They want to bring in immigrants to work in the U.S. in these coveted roles, a lot of which are STEM roles, but that they're not able to. And so they're sending them to Canada, where you mentioned our conversation with Arf Kamani uh, from Mob Squad. It can take as little as four weeks to get work authorization in Canada uh, and get somebody placed in an office in Vancouver, Waterloo, or wherever uh, to begin working there. Yeah, uh, comparing comparing the hurdles and seeing how other countries have uh, maybe respond is not the right word, but change their immigration systems to be maybe because they have the same hurdles. Um, and you know, you mentioned Canada, but also you know, look at like the UK. And they're creating new pathways for, yes, they might be like niche pathways, but they're still pathways for, for individuals and companies to, you know, to hire and send talent, to hire talent in the UK or send talent to the UK. Uh, there was that one recent one uh, from, I believe last year, it was, uh, if you graduated from, you know, a certain top university in the world, yeah. um, you know, you could live and live and work in the UK for, for a set period of time. So it's things like that. And then you compare it to the US where, you know, uh, we've talked about it almost with every guest so far, you know, just the lack of immigration reform and, you know, just the dim, there's, there's nothing on the horizon uh, that, you know, to just given the current makeup of, of, of uh, you know, the government that would lead us to believe that there would be any semblance of immigration reform here in the, in the United States. Yeah, exactly. Um, now there are, and we touched on it briefly, there are some minor changes that USCIS, mm -hmm. that some of the other agencies that uh, manage immigration uh, for the U.S. government are taking. Uh, and a couple of those uh, we'll talk with Ian Love, partner at Global Immigration Associates, uh, about. I had a chance to just hop on a quick call with him and ask a few questions uh, about some of those trends that he's been covering. Uh, the first is the 60-day grace period for H-1B holders who either quit their job or get laid off uh, by a company. Uh, they have, those folks have 60 days to find a new job uh, and have that employer uh, file an H-1B petition on their, on their behalf. Uh, and if they don't do that, they are forced to leave the U.S. That was a pretty hot topic uh, a couple of months ago when there were you know, a lot of layoffs in the news cycle. Um, and Ian has some really interesting thoughts about uh, how uh, employers can approach uh, hiring and sponsoring uh, foreign nationals who have been laid off and are in that 60-day window. Um, and he also talks about uh, there are some rumors that USCIS will extend that 60-day 60 um, 60-day grace period to 180 days um, sometime in the near future. Ian talks about what the actual implications of USCIS doing that would be uh, and how they would enact it uh, if the rumors are true. Uh, then the other thing we talked to him about uh, something we've alluded to a few times in this conversation, which is where are the registration numbers from the H-1B lottery for this year? Um, I was looking at uh, the USCIS website from last year, and it was around mid to late April when they released the registration numbers from the uh, fiscal year 2023 uh, H-1B mm -hmm. cap. Um, so hopefully we'll get those numbers soon. But Ian expands on uh, what he predicts will happen uh, in terms of the registration, total registration numbers uh, this year uh, for the lottery, as well as what the implications of duplicate uh, registrations mm. are. So those are employers who are, uh, those are individuals who get a registration submitted uh, in the H-1B lottery for them by more than one employer uh, mm -hmm. and how USCIS may be able to manage that in the future. And this was, 
a potential concern, was it, wasn't it, um, back when USCIS uh, announced the shift to an electronic registration system? You know, because with the with the old cap, everyone would you would you put together the petition all up front, submit it to USCIS, and then they would select it. But now, by lowering the barrier of entry, you know, as of now, that ten dollar registration fee, although that might increase in the future, and you know, even if it does, according to the trends report that uh, you alluded to earlier, employers would still pay that increased uh, registration fee um, for an H one B electronic registration. Uh, but this was a concern of, of, of you know, uh, by lowering the barrier of entry, you'd increase the number of registrations, even though the number of visas available has still remained at 85,000. Yeah, that was definitely a concern. And, you know, it's, it seems to be playing out as a valid one uh, in the last couple of years, right? Uh, like you said, there is a proposal being uh, discussed right now to raise the fee for USCIS to raise the registration fee from $10 to $215. Uh, likely, which would, if it were to uh, be instituted, it would be instituted for next year's H-1B cap. Um, but like you said, the, our survey, the Envoy Trend Survey, found that most employers would be willing to pay that increased fee and it wouldn't impact how many registrations they would submit. Uh, and then there's a question, and hopefully USCIS eventually released some information on this, uh, of whether the increase, the influx of these registrations are causing the technical delays that we saw uh, with the registration platform, uh, with the registration website uh, with USCIS. We, of course, saw that occur uh, two days before the intended uh, last day for registration uh, in mid-March this yeah. year. Yeah, no, that that's a good point because uh, this was the first, uh, I believe, the first time that they had technical difficulties. Um, registration uh, launched in the spring of 2020, so right at the start of the pandemic, um, and it worked. It survived that, um, obviously, 2021, 2022, and so yeah, um, it will be interesting to see those numbers and if that played any role in, in the in the technical difficulties that they had. Um, yeah, Finn, anything else? Otherwise, I think that's almost a perfect segue to your conversation with uh, Ian Love, a partner at uh, Global Immigration Associates. But uh, anything else to add? No, no. Excited to share the short conversation I had with Ian. And uh, he's a really smart guy with uh, great takes on what's going on in the high-skilled immigration world. Um, so we're excited to share that with the audience and hopefully bring you more in the future. Totally. Um yeah, and I think before before that, though, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, definitely don't forget to like this video as well as subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, uh, definitely would appreciate a follow. Um, all of that continues to help the show grow um, and for us to you know uh, keep putting great content in front of everyone. So with that, uh, we have Finn's conversation with Ian Love coming up now. Ian, we're recording this on Friday, April 14th. Uh, as of today, USCIS has yet to release the total number of registrations submitted in the fiscal year 2024 H-1B cap. Uh, why do you think USCIS has yet to release those numbers? And how many registrations in total do you think will be reported for this year? Well, yeah, you're correct, Ben, that we haven't seen the number of register the total number of registrants be released yet. But what we have seen for our firm and what we're hearing from other firms as well is the selection rate uh, is hovering around 15, maybe 20 percent for some clients that got a little bit more fortunate. 
And that's been just a year-over-year -year decrease ever since USCIS started the H-1B cap registration lottery. So what that suggests is that the number of registrants being submitted is increasing every year, while the demand, or excuse me, the supply remains stagnant at 85,000 uh, new cap slots available each year. Now, um, USCIS has not yet released the total number of registrations submitted, but uh, if you extrapolate from the 15 to 20% selected, that ends up with probably something in the range of seven to 800,000 potentially that were uh, submitted uh, into the registration lottery. Um, one, we do expect that USCIS will release that number eventually. One key uh, data point that they haven't provided in previous years when they released the total numbers is how many of those are duplicate registrations for the same person. Uh, the uh, regulations governing the cap registration prohibit the same employer from submitting multiple registrations to the same person, but that doesn't prevent multiple employers from registering one person. So some employees may get multiple employers to submit a registration for them in order to increase their chances of getting at least one selection with some employer. But then when multiple people do that, uh, which is understandable because they want to increase their individual chances. But when multiple people do that, then that number grows and grows. It increases the total number of registrants and then decreases the selection odds overall. So in addition to just seeing the total number of registrations submitted, it would be really a key data point to also see if USCIS would release the number of registrations submitted for the same person by multiple different companies. Ian, just a few months ago, a big story in the news were how H-1B employees were being impacted uh, by the layoffs that were mainly centered in the tech and finance industries. Uh, can you explain what happens to an H-1B employee when they are laid off? So H-1B uh, workers generally have uh, a 60-day grace period after the termination of their uh, employment in which they can find a new employer to file a new H-1B petition for them without them having to uh, depart the country. So practically speaking, though, when it takes at least a couple of weeks in most situations, sometimes longer to, for a new employer to prepare an H-1B petition. When you factor in you know, other uh, causes that can lead to delay in petition preparation processes, realistically, that means that H-1B workers have about a 30-day period in which to find a new employer to, uh, and then have that new employer prepare and file a new petition for them well, within that 60-day grace period. It's still possible for them to get a new job have a new employer file a petition for them even after that time period, but in almost all situations, they would have to leave the country and re-enter, which makes that them a much less desirable candidate to the employer given the additional hassle of onboarding them. Uh, so it really can be quite stressful for people who, uh, in many cases, have been in the U.S. for years, may have you know, to consider or looking for a new job while considering, am I going to have to break my lease? Or maybe they have a mortgage, maybe they have a car loan, they have kids enrolled in school, they really started to put down roots in the U.S. even though they're on a temporary visa. Uh, and so that could be a really stressful, um, additional stress on top of the stress that anyone would experience while going through that situation. So there has been uh, an advisory uh, council that has recommended extending the grace period to 180 days. Currently, it is written into uh, federal regulations that the grace period is 60 days, so it would require some regulatory process updates, we expect. Um, but its practical impact, if that does go forward, is that, um, in fact, it would uh, it would multiply by five the amount of time the employer employee has to find a job. Currently, you know, I recommend, you know, as I mentioned, it would be about 30 days to find a job and get a new employer to start filing a petition. But that would extend that 30 days to about five months uh, during, until the employer has to start getting ready to file its petition to do it within 180 days. Uh, so really, that would be a big benefit to uh, any laid off H-1B employees. Um, 
one question though is whether it would be applicable retroactively like if people whose 60 days had already expired would be granted the additional 120 days to reach 180 or if it only applied to uh, people uh, who lost their jobs going forward so that would be a big question to resolve as well but it could be a big potential benefit um, and relief to those who hold h1b status Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to Immigration and Mobility Decoded. Uh, if you watched this video on YouTube and you enjoyed it, please hit the like button and consider subscribing to the Envoy Global YouTube channel for more content like this. Uh, otherwise, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks everyone.